let me lead us in prayer. Well, thank you that even though we're not gathered in the same place as we would like to be, um, you love to speak. And so we pray as we delve into this passage now and as we spend time in home groups through the week or as we discuss on Zoom or over coffee with friends, whatever it might be, pray that you would um, work these truths deep into our hearts. We confess there's something profoundly human about seeking to earn our position and standing with you. Um, and so we pray that as we come face to face with that in these verses, you would show us something more of your beauty and your majesty and your grace and you would help us please to turn to you and from ourselves in jesus name we pray um, if we had a mantelpiece um, or a trophy cabinet in our house i think i've shown you this before but then pride of place would go to this beauty can you see it amazing it is um an award I got as a 15-year-old at school for playing rugby. Um, Colts B team, we were the team of the year, and that really was the peak of my short-lived sporting prowess. Um, I was player of the year, player of the player of the team, team of the player of the year, and the, the team was just doing amazingly. Anyway, I look back on 15-year-old, and that was the height of my um, sporting ability. Um, were, were we good as a team? No, not particularly. Were our opponents good? Not really. And yet it's interesting, isn't it? Something for the perpetual display cabinet. Why do I still have it? Something to fall back on when life is falling apart. Maybe, maybe pro rugby is still a thing. It's not going to happen. Am I joking? I am joking in a way, but it's funny. The kind of things we might take confidence in, the kind of things that we might be proud of, it's interesting, this whole lockdown thing, I think has been so painful for so many um, because lots of those things that we take confidence in have been taken away from us. Maybe it's your job, but then you've been put on furlough. Or maybe it's your income, but then income looks a bit questionable. Maybe it's been reduced. Perhaps you take confidence in your physical health, but actually you've been unwell. Maybe confidence in your mental health, but to be honest, you struggled. Maybe confidence in friendships, but you've not been able to see people. Maybe some of the reason we've struggled so much through this season is because the things we've been taking confidence in have shown themselves not to be quite so stable or permanent as we thought they were. But then what if we translate that reality across to the world of faith? Whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, it matters because the kind of things we have confidence in to get us through life, indeed to get us through death, well, Paul will tell us if we got confidence in the wrong things, it's utterly disastrous. If we're building on sand rather than rock, that sand doesn't last. It's interesting, actually, Paul will speak in very strong terms, almost offensive terms with some of the language he uses. The, the kind of confidence that he describes he could have his, in his upbringing, his bloodline, his law keeping, his zeal. He would describe it very graphically in 3 verse 8. The translation we have is, is garbage. But, you know, it's actually more than that. It, it's maybe the kind of disgusting thing you'd need to step, you'd need to wash off your shoes if you stepped in it in the park. That's the kind of language he's getting at. And those good things that Paul speaks of from the past, to him they are, are repulsive. They're disgusting now. 
why does he use such strong language? Why is Paul so keen for us to get this? Because, because false confidence before God is offensive, it's repulsive, and it's disastrous. He wants us to feel something of that. Paul longs for us to trust only in the right things. You see, before God, in, in, the, in the trophy cabinet of our hearts, where there are all sorts of things we could line up, what are we to have on display? What are we to take confidence in? The only answer that matters is Jesus. Paul will say to us at the end of the day, he is all we need. He is the only thing that really matters. Which means at the conclusion of this section, and we'll see it next week in 3 verse 17, again, Paul's asking us to copy him. Verse 17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Paul longs for the church in Philippi and he longs for us, like him, to, to only count on Christ, to only trust in Christ. What does that look like? Well, 3 verse 1, it starts off, and we don't bat an eyelid because we've been here a number of times already. 3 verse 1, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Once again, he's wanting us to have our joy glasses on, isn't he? He's, he's wanting us to see the world in terms of what Jesus has done and what he is doing, rather than our circumstances or our situation. Make Jesus the supreme object of your delight. And then, and then we'd barely drawn breath. And before you know it, verse 2, he, he's warning us about some more opponents. Some more people causing problems for the Philippian church. Earlier in the letter, there was some opposition from outside the church. Do you remember in the first sermon? Now it seems there's opposition from inside the church as well. See how he describes them. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, he'll say. He's pretty blunt. Is it just that Paul's defending himself? Using that apostolic badge to squish those who don't toe the party line, who don't fall in line with their doctrine? No, he, he's not defending himself. He wants to defend their joy. He wants to defend their assurance. And so by using these opponents as examples, he tells them firstly, number one, to take your eyes off yourself. Take your eyes off self. I know the green screen was making it glitchy for a few of you, so we've gone back to old school bits of paper. First point, take your eyes off yourself. Verse two. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. It is we who serve by His Spirit, serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. Do you see? They think they are on the inside, but Paul is very clear that actually they are on the outside. Why? Well, because at the heart of their message, they say God is happy with them, that they are righteous because of their performance. And this isn't just their take on things. It's not just their way of seeing it, their way of reading the Bible. No, this is not just harmless. Paul won't just let this lie. He says, watch out for them. 
watch out. Back in chapter one, there were two different opponents, actually. There was pressure from the outside, you remember, opposition, hardship they were facing. But also there were those who, who were preaching the same gospel message, but for bad reasons. Do you remember? Paul didn't mind. This, though, this in chapter three, this is far more dangerous. Probably what's going on is that there were Jewish false teachers who were saying that Jesus was good. He was good, but belief in him wasn't actually enough for them. You need Jesus plus something else. In this case, Jesus plus some circumcision. And, and the problem always is with Jesus plus. It's disastrous because it says that only Jesus is not enough. Jesus only isn't sufficient. It says you need something more. It says you need something more than the forgiveness and the grace that Jesus offered. Something we must do. Something that we must bring to the party and contribute to our salvation. And then at the end of the day, what happens is... We end up trusting not in Jesus, but the plus. We end up trusting in what we do, our performance. Confidence comes from what we bring to the party, rather than his grace. Which is why in verse 2 he is very offensive as he describes them. He's pointed. Look at the different ways. Firstly, he describes them as dogs. And that's a huge irony. It was a, it was a term of contempt from Jews for Gentiles. It, it meant you were unclean. It said that you didn't belong here. But what does Paul do? He flips it on his head. As they trust in circumcision, actually they are the ones that are unclean. They are the dogs now. They're not inside. They're on the outside. Or evildoer, that is, they are damaging people's faith. They are saying Jesus is not enough. His death isn't sufficient. And so they turn people against God's plan to deal with evil. Or, or thirdly, mutilators of the flesh. Again, it's an interesting phrase. It probably refers to circumcision, but it has got overtones of pagan worship too. Often in pagan worship, they would physically mutilate themselves in the worship of their false gods. Remember the prophets of Baal. And you see again, they think they're on the inside. But they're not. They're on the outside. They think they are in God's family, but they're outside God's family. And so do you see why this matters? When we think God is happy with us, when we think that we're righteous and we're on the inside because of our performance, because of what we bring to the party, because of what we do, actually we're not on the inside at all. We're on the outside. And so it will rob us of any real joy. I think that's why verse 2 follows verse 1. When our joy is about what we have or we don't have or what we've done or what we've not done rather than what he has done. The finished work of Christ for us. When it's about those things, then joy will be elusive. Joy will be something we try and grasp onto, but we keep missing. Up and down and hard to grab hold of. It's, it's like a tiny balsa wood boat rocked about on the brutal crashing waves of life. But Paul's joy is in Christ, which means it's firm and it's steadfast and it's lasting. And you can build on it. He had, he tells us, so many things that he could be proud of. 
so much that he could take confidence in and give him potential swagger, so many trophies in the cabinet that he could show off with. If it was about externals, verse five to six, he would wipe the floor with them. He was born into a Jewish family, tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day in obedience to the law. No doubt he could trace his family history all the way back. He was a strict Pharisee following all the laws to the letter and such was his zeal and love for the truth. He even persecuted Christians. Who he was, what he did was exemplary. As someone put it, Paul was fanatical. He, he had done everything the law required of him. He had all the badges, he could count all the stripes, he could tick all the boxes. But then verse seven, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. You see, to now to him, those good things, those good things that he could delight in and take confidence in, they, they are as if he stepped in something at the park and he needs to wash his shoes. They're disgusting and repulsive. And what Paul wants is for us to follow him, to, to get rid of, to count as loss, those things that we might find confidence in. And simply to look to Christ and to know him. Knowing you, Jesus, with your son. See how verse eight continues, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He's given up his, his pedigree and, and trusting in his trophy cabinets and his lineage and his performance and who I am and what I have done. And now he has Christ and he's found in him with a righteousness that comes from God given to him. Not earned, but given as a gift. I wonder what those things are for you and for me. What potentially good things might we find confidence in that we ought not? The things that we should find as repulsive. A little while ago, um, I asked a few people, um, people in my home group, people at church, um, some of you who'll be listening in, um, some of the good things that we can trust in where we find ourselves having a false confidence, where we think we can earn a righteousness. Uh, people were very honest and it was very telling. It resonated with me as well. For some people it was trusting in busyness and activity and serving others and being on rotors and keeping busy and playing a part and, and even talking to friends about Jesus. For others, it was trusting in the kind of networks that we're a part of, maybe the churches that you've been to or the, the summer camps or the friendship groups, kind of circles you move in. For some, it was how regular you were at church or your home group or different meetings like prayer meetings. For some, it was how admired and appreciated you are by others. For others, it was, it was trusting in the fact that you can kind of tick the doctrinal box you know that you are sound you're on the mark you're orthodox for others and this was very honest it was trusting in your performance as being better than other people's 
you know, at least I'm not as bad as them, that kind of mentality, or, or even the performance of your kids. Well, at least my kids aren't as bad as their kids. Maybe there's some homework this week. What about a, a list of the wrong kinds of things that you are tempted to trust in, to find assurance in, to, to base your standing before God on? Almost you're tempted to think that they give you a righteousness apart from faith. And when we have that list, then it's a question of deciding and actively counting them as rubbish, as garbage, as repulsive, like Paul did. Maybe then grab a friend, grab a spouse, grab someone who knows and loves you, not physically if you're not in the same locality as them, um, the same family as them, but with Paul, count them as rubbish and disgusting and repulsive and, and pray for each other and pray for us as a church that verse 9, we might not have a false righteousness of our own that comes from law, but that which is true faith in Christ, the, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And if you're struggling to come up with things, Sometimes we do have blind spots. Sometimes we just get so used to them, we don't notice them. Maybe the thing to ask is, how would I feel if that role or that thing or that position was taken away from me? If I had to stop serving in this way, or if I was unable to attend this, or if I couldn't tick that box anymore, how would I cope with that? Again, some of us have been wrestling with that because lockdown has made life complicated. The things that we have been trusting in perhaps have been taken away from us. Maybe you begin to see that your identity, your self-worth, even your value was coming from a role or our service or a title rather than from Christ. And of course it's much easier isn't it to, to trust in what we do, to trust in our, our trophy cabinets and our performance and our ticking boxes and are comparing ourselves with others and at least I'm not like them. And Paul urges us, friends, take your eyes off yourselves. Stop thinking you can gain righteousness through what you do or don't do. But more than that, take your eyes off yourself and fix them firmly on Christ. Second point. Fix your eyes on Christ. Let me read those verses again for us from verse 10 to 14. Paul says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. So, so verse eight, he knows Christ already, of course, but do you see verse 10 and verse 11, it's a, it's a striking ambition for his life. He wants to know Christ 
more. Interesting, isn't it? I wonder if, if many of us could say that is our ambition. In the Bible, knowledge of a person is not so much a, a f collection of facts or information or ideas. It's not about being able to, to get the right questions and the right answers in a Bible study, but rather it's, it's personal, it's, it's relational. Well, you know, when you really get to know and to love someone, his selflessness, his kindness, his patience, his humility, his love, his, his character, to delight in him, to delight in his goodness. What does that look like, that kind of, of knowledge that Paul's getting at? Well, look at verse 10, it's a surprise. Do you see, it's, it's to know the life-bringing, transformative power of the resurrection at work in his life, making him more like the one whom he longs to know better. Do you see what he's saying? The, the glorious power that brought Jesus back from the dead is in fact the same power that is at work within us. That the empty tomb at Easter on the Sunday that speaks of God's power and new life shapes our every day as believers. It helps us to put on Christ and the life that we have in him. But it's more than that as well, verse 10. Knowing Christ, knowing Christ also includes participating in his sufferings. He wants to daily die as Christ died. He wants to do the Epaphroditus thing. Wanting to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Each morning to choose to put to death self and then to put on Christ. Living as one of his, and so verse 11, being, being raised with him. I find these verses really challenging. Just chewing this week on on how single-minded Paul is. It's in verse 10, it's in verse 11, verse 13 as well. One thing I do makes me think I need to prioritise more. To not be so distracted by the stuff that's going on. That there are so many things that we can do in life. So many things that can matter to us. So many things that are important. So many things to live for. But Paul shows us at the heart of it all, something of what it means to be single-minded. Something of what it means to know Jesus as our main ambition, that the one thing I do. What would my life actually say my ambitions were? What would your life actually say your ambitions were? When it, when it really comes down to it, when push comes to shove. Paul's honest, isn't he? he? He's not there yet, verse 12. He's not saying he's arrived. No, he, he presses on. That he's a work in progress. There's a frustration. He, he's keeping going. He's not there yet, but he's still plodding. Back at the start of the series, do you remember we, we spoke of the importance of running the race? Do you remember my friend, um, marathon training? Here again for Paul, there's the running imagery and it helps us. I press on, I strain forward to what lies ahead. Verse 12, Christ has put him in the starting blocks. 
verse 13 and 14, he's to keep running, he's to keep going, to keep pressing on towards the goal, not, not distracted by where he's come so far, not distracted by his track record, his, his past pedigree, not, not distracted by his trophies, but keeping his eyes on the goal, looking to the end, straining ahead. And it's so easy, isn't it, when you've been around for a while as a Christian, maybe you've been following Jesus for, for decades, and we can become cynical, a bit jaded. And yet we should never, never fall into the trap of either proudly sitting back and sort of resting on our laurels thinking, wow, it's as good as I'm going to get. Or simply happy that we've started the race. Or indeed sceptical that, that God's done with us, he's finished with us. Or that we can't or that we won't change. Now whether you've been a Christian for a week or a month or a year or a decade or five, ten decades. The sense in which we keep going. We keep going, we keep pressing on. One thing. There's a sense in which we should always be dissatisfied. A mark of maturity for the believer is to know that you're not mature. It feels like a paradox, but it's true. I read some comments um, about an Australian minister, a Christian minister, a little while ago. He died a few years back. Um, he was a guy called John Chapman. Um, some of you will have heard of him. Um, Chapo, affectionately known as. He, he was in his 80s and he, he's dead now. But this was an interview the last few years of his life. And the thing that struck the author as he interviewed Chapo was that the, the humility of the man. He said this, he said, he's a minister with vast experience and huge wisdom. And he's a godly man to boot. But is there any hint of John sitting back and saying, oh, I've made it? Not a bit. In fact, he continues, what struck, me, what struck me most about John as I saw him this time were the two things he said in casual conversation. More than once when he answered a question, he would preface it by saying, ah, you know, that's something I'm still working on. Or I've got a lot more work to do on that. As he answered questions about the Christian life or about his own godliness. It's a man who'd been a Christian for almost 60 years. And yet there's that humility at the heart of him to say there's still plenty more to learn. He knows he's not mature. And so we see something of his maturity. And so Mortimer Monroe, please keep running. Please keep going. What is the goal? What is the prize that we are running after? We're, we're running after Christ, finally. He is the one who will make heaven so amazing. And yes, to have him now is amazing. To, to be in him now is amazing. To know him now, such a privilege, such joy. To increasingly know him and the power of his resurrection, the, the pattern of his death now. To become like him now but also to see him gloriously face to face then, and to be finished, perfected then, to be with him forever then. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Friends, press on, keep going. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we confess how easily we fix our eyes on ourselves and the things that we do or the things that we've done. And so we find confidence in the wrong things. We pray this week you would show us the ways that we do that. And we pray that you would help us to feel the repulsion that we ought to feel towards those things if we seek to take confidence in them. Help us please to fix our eyes on Christ. Thank you for who he is. Thank you for what he's done. Thank you that we can know him and indeed we can know him better. We long that the power of the resurrection would be at work in us as individuals, as a church. And that you would give us that hope that we might press on and keep going. Thank you that Christ is enough. In his name we pray. Amen.